Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Brandon Voss. He believes there's a solution to every problem. He is the president of his father's Black Swan group, who he collaborates with to find those answers. Brandon, welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Better Call Daddy show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to to be with you today. Oh my gosh, I'm excited to be with you. Your daddy has been very instrumental in your career and life. I would say that I've been as just as instrumental in his. Oh, I like that. I like that. Tell well, me, me more about that. Well, yeah, sure, sure. That's an easy one. Can you name another hostage negotiator that has a successful business? Ooh, I can't. There's several. One actually just left the NYPD a couple of years ago and wrote a book about it. Another guy that's in business that's a hostage negotiator was actually Chris's boss when he was in the FBI. And he was actually even featured in the Netflix special about Waco. And then there's several other hostage negotiators that are out there in the world trying to make a business for themselves. We've actually tried to recruit ourselves and and several of them have decided to go at it on their own. And so this sounds rather insulting but in an effort to kind of express like my contribution is no one knows who those people are. That's true. And why is that? I think it has a lot to do with, you know, what Chris and I have been able to accomplish together. I mean, I think, so when we started the business, you know, a lot of it was based on trying to build his personal brand. And honestly, if if I could go back and do it all over again, that would not have been my strategy. But the reality is, is it was the easier road. You know, people, people connect with an individual more than they connect with an entity, right? Where people are Chicago Bulls fans and they're Michael Jordan fans. Everybody loves Michael Jordan. They love Kobe. They love the Lakers. They love Kobe, right? And so same idea. They, they're going to resonate with the name Black Swan or they're going to resonate with a human being who they can look in the eye and shake their hand. And obviously the latter is a little bit more obvious. And so that's, that's where we went. And then, you know, especially since the book came out and his personal brand got accelerated exponentially as a result, you know, the effort of, of building the Black Swan brand itself up much more since then is, has been a major focus. So it's been a great journey. It's been a great journey. And tell me also, I want to I want to take it back to even before that, your grandfather has also had a tremendous influence on your entrepreneurial spirit. Oh, yeah. Without question. Yeah, my grandfather put me to work when I turned six years old. And so, yeah, (laughs) I understand what it means to hard physical labor in the heat of the summertime at a young age. But yeah, he was he had an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, he ended up his business was he was basically the middleman between gas stations and like the, the major gas provider, which happened to be Shell at the time which means his margins weren't very much, right? You go, you go buy it for $2 a gallon from Shell and then you sell it for two oh one at the gas station, right? So the margins are big. And actually where in that line of business, his money was made in the convenience stores that were attached to the gas stations. One of my favorite things to tell people is 
you know, he wasn't the nicest guy. You know, he was an assertive, in your face, tell you what to do. In small town Iowa, he actually had a reputation for calling up other gas stations in the area and screaming at them about changes that they made to the price per gallon. Because in order for everybody to make money, right, we've got to be all in the similar margins. If there's a five or six cent difference, that's a problem. And he'd call people up and scream at them. I found out the hard way that the nickname for Richard is in fact Dick. And <laughs> grandfather's name is Richard, but he never introduced himself as anything other than Richard. And so it was always easy to tell who in town did not like my grandfather because whenever he spent time with them, they made it a point to refer to him as Dick as often as they possibly could during the conversation. <laughs> Oh my God, that's awesome. I love that. I actually named my oldest Raphael, but he was named after a Richard. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> but my last name is Watts, so I didn't want to do Dick Watts to my kids. Yeah, understandable. Way, way to look ahead, right? Because I'm, I'm a new parent myself, and like we, me and my wife did a lot of looking ahead. Like, how do we prevent her, our daughter, from like getting made fun of because of her name? Or like when people look at job applications, they don't make poor assumptions, right? You got to think about those things before you start naming your kids. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Unfortunately, there is some bias around names. <laughs> there is. There is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, congratulations on being a dad. Thank you very much. Very, very exciting. Our little girl, Amira, came to us in the wee hours of the morning on Father's Day 2020. So it was oh my God. a wonderful way nice to gift. celebrate. Yeah, yeah, it was. Very nice. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. So 2020 has been a good year for you. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, between personally and then for, you know, the, the different changes we made across company-wide, you know, 2020 ended up being a decent year for us. And so we're just, we're excited about what the future holds. If we can survive that, then, you know, the sky's the limit. So I actually heard your dad last night on Clubhouse. Have you been getting on there at all? I have not. Speaking I need to, of <laughs> personal brand and he, he had the stage and he actually mentioned you last night, which I was like, wow, this is like a message from God. I can use this the next day. He was talking. <laughs> well, hopefully it was nothing bad, right? He, he wasn't talking about me being a knucklehead or anything, was he? <laughs> no, no. He was talking about a time where he wanted to give a ticket to someone for free. Yes. And you didn't like that. I am not a huge advocate of giving away free things in general. So yeah. <laughs> so what jumped out at you? What'd you want to, what'd you want to ask me about that? I wanted to know how do you turn a no into a yes with your dad? Ah, very good. Very good. Yeah, no, great question. So the reality is it really starts with not actually trying to get him to say yes. You know, just like we talk about in the book and in our training, right? Like how do, how do I actually get agreement but through a no, or even more, what seems to work pretty well for me, and this is, this is something I lean on a lot in conversation, we actually refer to it as a thought-shaping question. And the short of it is, it's a combination of a calibrated question and an accusations audit kind of married together. Example of it would be, you know, how much would I upset you if I told you I didn't want to give away any free tickets? And like, oh, no, nah, it wouldn't upset me at all. I understand, right? You're the president. It's your job to watch our bottom line. And so now I've got an agreement through the use of a question. 
And so that, that would be like something I'd use in a case like that. Yeah, he actually told the story of getting that same person who wanted the free ticket to then buy three tickets. Yeah. Do you know who yeah. I'm talking about? He is. He's talking about the Robert Herzog story. I believe. Exactly. Yeah, that was that was an interesting one. And Robert, Her- by the way, Robert Herzog, what a great guy. He's a phenomenal person. Haven't actually got a chance to shake his hand in person, but yeah, just good guy. You know, it was fun having his people there. They were very engaged which is honestly not always the case, right? People get in, they get, they got these notions about how important they are. And so they have a tendency to turn a blind eye to certain things. And that is not at all his approach. I mean, he is, he is a life learner and he's always looking to improve himself and his team. And so that's, that's something that, is, that I highly respect for many reasons. Yeah, so tell me about some of your students and the, and the questions that they ask. And I'll flip it around a little bit. The one question I probably get the most, and actually we probably get the most, even as a company, is how do you mentally get to a place where you're rewired, where you're actually approaching every interaction differently than you used to? Like, what, what is the actual, what does it take? How do you actually get there? I've always felt like the answers I gave were insufficient. And so I made it a point to the people that are in our environment that are fans and subscribers and heavy followers. I use them as a resource. I reach out to them like, what what did you do? How did you get to this place where you essentially rewired your brain and you got this whole new outlook on communication? My findings were that maybe my answer wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. It's just hard to accept because of the simplicity of it. The reality is it's repetitions. There isn't like, you know, go do this meditation, right? And stand on one leg and close your left eye and right and do this hot yoga thing. And it'll, no, it's, it's, it's not like that. It's just being cognitively flexible at all times and also making a conscious effort to look at things through a new light. Like that, especially up front, like you got to tell yourself out loud, like I am going to see what they say to me differently than I used to, right? When they say something to me, I'm going to make it a point not to respond. What I'm actually going to do is use a tactical empathy skill, right? If they ask me a question, I will never, ever answer that question at face value. I will always say, it seems like X is important to you and fill in the X based on the context of the questioning, the line of questioning they laid out or use what makes you ask every time a question is asked of me. And so that just especially up front at the beginning, you got to be able to tell yourself whether out loud or write it on it, write it on your hand. So you remember, but you, that's where it starts. And then it just becomes muscle memory. You know, I, I compare it a lot to, you know, I'm a sports guy, football in particular. And I compare it to like, everybody knows the name Peyton Manning. Everybody knows the name Tom Brady. If you look at the way those guys evolve their throwing motion throughout their career, then you, it's the same idea because now, you know, especially Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, right? We just got a chance to watch it. When he throws the perfect pass, it's muscle memory. It's unconscious. What he does with his feet, the way his hand is centered in the middle of his chest, the way the ball passes right by his ears, he lets it go. But when he started, it was a very thoughtful process. Like, okay, make sure that my feet are in the right place. Make sure I drop back enough. Make sure that my, my elbow's tight to my body. And now it's unconscious. You not have to think of it that way. Same, same process. What was it like when you started? Uh, it was daunting, you know, just like it is for a lot of people, especially, you know, with Chris being the guy. 
And I will admit, you know, that's another thing that I would do differently. You know, if we could, if we did the business thing all over again, something I would have done differently was make it a point to be of a more of assistance at the negotiation table. What I mean by that is when I'm just getting started, I'm still like a novice in this. We go sit down to negotiate big deals. And my thought is like, I'm I'm here with the guy. This is the guy, right? I just got to sit back and listen and try to soak up some of the knowledge as we work our way through these interactions. And the reality was because I was so content or so set on sitting back and watch the master work, I wasn't ever an asset to him. You know, and I'm, I'm talking, you know, first four to six months, right? This, is, this didn't last for years. And when it really dawned on me, you know, the biggest contract we had negotiated up to the time, uh, we were at their office, it was actually in Virginia, just south of DC, and we took a break. And we get out of the room and I look at my father and I say, when they said this to you, I was shocked that you didn't respond by saying this. And I don't remember exactly what the context was, but that was the question. And he looks at me and he goes, I have no memory of them saying that. I got to say, that was also the moment when I really started to look deeply into team interaction at the table. What does it take to function as a, as a high value team? And the reality is, you know, brain science proves, especially when you have a speaking role, you don't have the mental capacity to soak up everything in the environment. And so that's definitely something I would change. I'd make it an effort to just label more, right? Even if I'm just sitting there off to the side, try to jump in, just contribute with a label, any, any chance you get, right? I would, I would have done that more. And I would have spent more time with him and I prepping each other to function as a team. Because like a lot of people, right? We just, oh, we got to discuss this issue. And these are the people that are on the deal team. And like, let's all just go. And everybody just shows up and they start the deal. But there's no element of team preparation. You know, even when they're spending 10, 20 minutes sitting together talking about, okay, like Jack, you're going to open with the accusations audit. And then based on how they respond, you know, Rena, you're going to follow up with a calibrated question. And it's probably going to sound something like this. And then if they go down this path, Brandon, this is where you're going to jump in with the summary about XYZ issue, right? Negotiation teams aren't doing that on a regular basis. And that's something I'd have made a point to do a lot more of with Chris in the early days of Black Swan, for sure. What really jumps out about that whole conversation to me is how do you keep your mind mentally sharp? Like, do you do things consciously? Like, do you meditate? Do you do like brain exercises? Because so much of your job is about remembering the details and your short-term memory needs to be sharp. Yeah, that's a great point. That is a great point. So a couple, you know, stupid things that I do, like I actually like playing Sudoku. There's a fair amount of data out there that shows it's good for brain health, right? That's, that's one of the things that I do. But yeah, like the meditation thing is actually really interesting. Like, you know, I don't look it, but I'm 35 now. I almost said 36. I'll be 36 later this year. But, you know, when I'm in my 20s and in my teens, you know, late teens, I thought meditation was a bunch of bunch of hokum, right? Like, ah, you know, it's kumbaya. Like, you know, you're just wasting time. Like, you could be getting something done, but instead you're sitting around in a quiet room, right? As I started to experiment with it and then got a chance to meet more successful people that make it a point to meditate anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes a day, test driving it myself, 
it's amazing what it does to you when you just simply focus on your breathing. I mean, even if you don't get more complicated than that, but just sitting and focusing on the inhale and the exhale. And so that's another thing. And then, and then something else I actually learned, and this was from Strategic Coach. So Chris and I are both at Strategic Coach. We're in, the, we're in the 10X program. Shameless plug for Dan Sullivan, but that's okay. We, we're, we love Dan and Babs. They're wonderful, wonderful people. When you start in that program, they talk a lot about what it takes to stay mentally sharp. And one of those things is you have to step away from your busy environment for 24 hours when you don't think about it at all. Like it's, it's actually for your, for your brain health and for your physical health and for your ability to continue to think properly, you gotta unplug for a 24 hour period. And actually refer to that as like a golden ticket free day in strategic coach, but the, the purpose of free days to, to just separate yourself from your everyday busy life is actually really good for your, your mental function. And then back to the like teamwork aspect of what you were saying. And I felt like the way that you were actually describing that sounded like a football coach. <laughs> Workflow is something that is so hard especially in the beginning, there's so many steps, there's so many moving pieces. Like, how have you gotten that to be a well-oiled ship? Yeah, you know, and, and I will admit it's not as, a, as well-oiled as, as I wish sometimes, but I think that's just, that's the nature of things, right? At what The old cliche, and I'm probably going to screw this up, but like the best laid plans never survived the first bullet in battle or something along those lines, right? But this idea of you can plan, 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 but then everything is going to potentially blow up if, if you're not ready for it. And so in that aspect of it and knowing that that's a possibility, that's a big part of prepping as a team is being ready for the curveballs. You know, understanding when we go in, this might go sideways and this is how we're prepared to handle it when it does, but we still want to stick to our main functions as a team, right? And then it's just, you know, what's your main role, what's your secondary role, and what's your tertiary role based on the seat that you occupy in the team. And you've worked in different industries, too. You've worked in telecom and retail. How is negotiation different in those verticals? That's one of the things that I absolutely love about negotiation is the terms change, the people change, but the importance of managing emotions, the importance of getting out in front of negatives, the importance of displaying understanding and, and turning yourself or your counterpart into a trusted advisor, all those things are constant. You know, everybody wants to have a high value deal. Everybody wants to be better off as a result. Everybody understands the importance of relationships, especially over long-term and like all of those things are consistent. And so the sequencing of the communication doesn't change, but the terms generally do. Process is actually very similar. And so one, one of the things that I used to love when I was in software and technology sales for Verizon, and I was going door to door, business to business, right? I had territories that I worked. And as you can imagine, many of those stores in those territories had no solicitation signs out front. And I'm falling to the category of a solicitor. Even if they're a Verizon customer, I still fall into that category. And, you know, identifying that that's the first hurdle to overcome, address the negative, right? What's the biggest problem in their mind? I'm soliciting and I had the audacity to walk right by their no solicitation sign and come into their store and talk to them anyway. Who in the hell do I think I am? And starting at that place, generally people would laugh. 
You know, it was, it was like a breath of fresh air that they would deal with someone that identified the biggest negative in their mind and then instantly verbally displayed an understanding of that negative. And now they're happy to talk to me. And it's the same process in every negotiation I think I've ever been in. I love that because I myself have turned many no's into yeses. So I love people that can do that. Can you tell me some more examples of times you've done that? A couple of different ones. And these both come from my youth and both have to actually do with me getting into trouble. And, and you may have even heard Chris has referenced these stories in a couple of different occasions. I went to private school when I was in my high school years and uh, finished my, my high school, my senior year in high school down here in D.C. at a school called St. John's. Great school, by the way. Had proud to be an alumni there. But I was, I was notorious for never being in uniform. I hated wearing the church shoes with the hard sole bottoms, so I'd wear sneakers to class, right? I hated wearing my tie up around my neck, so I, I wore it way down. Or like uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I wore it on the side of his head, right? I'd be walking around school with it on the side of my head, my jacket inside out. I was notorious for doing stuff like that. And so, of course, I'm at St. John's. I'm a brand new student, and I'm out of uniform every day in my first week. Right. And finally, someone's like, look, you got to go see Mr. At the time, the guy's name was Mr. Cox. He was our he was the dean of discipline, I believe was his technical title. Here I am walking down to his office. I know why I'm going to be in trouble. I know he's not going to be happy. And so before I even let him get a word out when I walk in his office. And so I'll, I'll paint the scene. I walk in. He's standing up on the other side of the room, on the other side of his desk with his back to the door. And I come in and I just, I kind of freeze in the doorway. And without turning to look at me, he goes, shut the door behind you. I'm like, okay, and, right? And he hasn't turned around yet. And I shut the door behind me. And he turns to look at me. And I literally go, Mr. Cox, before you say anything, I know I'm way out of line, not being in uniform. There's, there's no excuse for me to adhere to the school rules on a uniform and having these shoes on is a violation of that. And he looks at me. And then he looks down at my shoes and he goes, those shoes are pretty tight though. Like I, I never, I never forget the way he looked up at me. He's like, those shoes are pretty tight though. And he pulls out this pad out of his desk and he writes down and he goes, here, take this note. Anybody else gives you crap for the rest of the day about your shoes, just hand them this, tell them you got it from me and you'll be fine. That was an interesting way to meet the Dean of Discipline for the first time, being breaking the rules and developing a relationship where he gave me a free pass for the day, right? That's so that's one of them. And then Mr. Cox story was about 17. This time I'm probably 20, 21. I'm actually in, in traffic court for excessively speeding. I'm going so fast and my violation is so bad that I'm actually looking down the barrel of jail time as a result because I was doing like almost four times the speed limit. I stand up in front of the judge and knowing ahead of time that the judge is probably going to give me at least four days sitting in the cell. And I immediately lay out all the reasons why this judge would condemn me to the nth degree. And I started out by simply saying, Your Honor, I have no excuse for my actions. And then I ended my little dissertation with the judge by saying, Your Honor, not only was what I did wrong, but I broke the law. And the judge looked at me. And it's funny when you, when, you, when you address people this way, it's, they always get a funny look on their face, which is always kind of fun. But she looked at me and the end result was she actually sent me to an in-class driving course that took place at my firehouse. That was just a two-day thing, right? Six to eight, two evenings in a row. And that was it, right? Didn't, didn't get a fine, didn't get points on my license, didn't have to go to jail. 
just had to go to this course taught by the state troopers for a couple of nights and everything was okay. Okay. So first off, God bless Mr. Cox. What a cool guy. <laughs> yes. He was a cool guy. <laughs> and then I'm thinking that like the trouble that I have been in, I should have just condemned myself and I would have done better off. You know what? There's something to that. And even, <laughs> even more so than condemning yourself, you got to think about how would my counterpart condemn me? Right. If they, if my counterpart was going to lay out all the crappy things that they think about me or the situation that we're in, how would they say it? And then you just beat them to the punch and you can even start like, Hey, look, I know you got stuff you want to say before you get into that and then just lay it all out. Like, I know you think that I'm a jerk. I imagine that it looks like I haven't been real nice to you up to now. And you're probably wondering whether or not talking to me is even worth your time. Right. And then it's amazing how that loosens people up. Okay. So let me tell you about a situation and maybe you can tell me how I could have handled this better. Please do. Yeah. I got my daughter a new comforter set for her bed because it was just her birthday and they forgot to take the freaking ink tag off. So I get home after I spent, you know, a couple hundred bucks at the store of getting her all yeah. new stuff for her room. And it's zero degrees in Chicago. Okay, so going back to that store is not something that I want to do with the amount of snow outside. <laughs> so I call the store and I'm annoyed. You know, I'm like, the alarm didn't go off. My daughter's crying. She wanted to make her room look pretty. And I got to come back to your store now so that my daughter can be happy on her birthday with what I just got her. I think you should like, honestly, give me a little store credit or throw in some earrings or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, the lady yeah. on the phone was like, look, ma'am, you know what I mean? She was like, you are yelling at me right now. And then immediately I'm even more annoyed. I'm like, mm -hmm. you're not shopping at this store anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> you just lost another customer, right? <laughs> yeah. What? They did not care whatsoever. They're like, if you come back, we'll take the tag off or you can return the blanket. I'm like, smoke was coming out of my ears. Yeah, those, those, I, I, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because what you just described is one of those instances where it is most difficult to stay cognitively flexible, right? We've been talking about mental flexibility, like in those highly emotional moments, it's almost impossible. And even Daniel Kahneman, you know, one of the two guys that won the, uh, the Nobel Prize on prospect theory, he's got a famous quote that I love that I always bring up is simply that. People often fail to act rational when faced with a complex decision. You know, this issue over comforter doesn't seem complex, but the reality is for the people at the store, it is complex because it's like, oh, do I got to talk to the manager? If I do store credit, how do I do it and apply it to her account? Or, you know, when she comes back, am I going to be on shift? And now she, I got to get yelled at in person when she brings the thing? Like all of these things are going on in their mind, which makes it fairly complex. And so to answer the question on like how to potentially do it better, the advice I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out here, this actually applies to every single person that we talk to that holds a customer service role of some kind. We're trying to address negatives up front. One of the best ways to start out is, I know this isn't your fault. Because everybody that calls them wants to hold them personally accountable for all the problems in the world. And they get sick of that. I think, I think there's some people that work in like the retail industry or, or any of those customer service spots 
that actually revel in the moments when they can shut a customer down. Like you should have heard this person yelling at me. And I told, I said, ma'am, you can go screw yourself, right? Like they, they love telling those stories. And so when you start out with, I know this isn't your fault, there's an instant sigh of relief that comes over them because like you understand, right? You're verbalizing, you understand that I'm not the Verizon guy that came out and hooked up your cable wrong. So now your files doesn't work, right? That's not my fault. Or I wasn't responsible for getting tagged off your comforter. That wasn't me directly. That you start out that way and then you follow that up with like, I know I'm gonna sound like another annoying customer, right? I, I know that I'm being really difficult and what I'm gonna say next is gonna make your day worse. And now their ears are completely open. And then there's another, there's a secondary premise behind this that we actually talk about a lot. And the phrase simply goes, never be mean to someone that can hurt you by doing nothing. And so we combine, right, this idea of being able to recognize when we're faced with this situation and then starting out with what are common problems that someone who's in customer service sees, he yelled at things that aren't their fault, they're constantly dealing with customers that sound like crybabies, they always got to be the solution-oriented person, Right, those are the common things. And so we address all that up front and it, it, it makes the conversation much more seamless. It makes it a lot easier to broach the issues that need to be solved at the time. Do you do this with your wife? <laughs> well, this is, well, she might see this. I can't, I can't admit to that on camera. But yeah, the short, the short answer is yes. And it, there's actually, truly before we got married and she moved down to Maryland, moved in the house with me that I was living in at the time we had gotten into an argument and this was like a Thursday and she was going to pack all her stuff and go back to New Jersey to her mom's house and at least spend the weekend there, if not an extended period of time. Cause I was a dope, right? I, I was, I had screwed up. I don't even remember what the context was, but I know we were arguing. I followed up with like, you know, I haven't been fair to you. I haven't done a good job listening. I, I know I sound like a complete jerk and you don't deserve that. Right. And just went into the whole dissertation about I understand that I have created all of these problems and that's not fair to you as a result. And it was and, and in a snap of a finger, she went from I'm going away for five days to, well, I, it wouldn't hurt if I stayed. And, you know, we, we just figured out how to work our way through this. And so and I will say, you know, people always worry about using these skills for evil. Like, is it manipulative, right? When you do this to people and you're using these skills. And so my answer to that is kind of twofold. The first one is the difference between influence and manipulation is intent. And so if your intent is to take advantage, then you are taking an immoral stance in the use of your skills. So that's the first part. And then the second part is very much like where we started our conversation today you know, the, the cycles, like how does it take to change the mental way that you approach negotiation? It just, it comes from reps and practice. You get enough reps and practice and the stuff comes out naturally, right? You're like, you don't even think about it. It's like, oh, I screwed up. I got to explain to my wife how stupid she thinks I am. And I understand that she thinks I'm stupid. And these are the reasons why I'm stupid. And it becomes a much, just a much more natural flow. And, and again, the intent is to make things better. Now I want to know a time that you could not change somebody's mind. Ah, interesting one. Then, and there is one that does come to mind here. And it's funny, it's, it deals with this a traffic court incident again. But I, I was recently in traffic court because my license was suspended and I didn't realize because I had gotten a ticket out of state 
like over a year ago that I never paid and just forgot all about it. And so they notified the state of Maryland and then Maryland suspended my license as a result. I get pulled over for like a blinker or taillight or something. And of course it comes up to my license suspended. So I managed to go to, to the DMV and get it all straightened out. I get my su- suspension lifted. They issue me a new license, all that stuff. But in the state court system, I still technically have to go to court for a suspended license. So the day I show up to go to court, it's obviously during COVID. I don't find out till I get into the courtroom that they actually push my court date back almost six months. So I came to court that day for no reason. And I hadn't been notified because the mail's slow because of COVID, right? So I figure I'm going to go to the clerk's office and I'm going to find a way to nullify my court date, right? Cancel it all together because I'm not technically in violation of, every, of anything and they should be able to help me out. Now, the, the other thing about the, the element here is dealing with someone that is not obligated to help you has no interest in helping you. And this is also like right before the holiday too. So this is like December 16th, you know, everybody's gearing up for Christmas. And like, I could tell when the the supervisor at the clerk's office came out of her office in the back, she had a look on her face. Like I wasn't planning on working today, right? I ain't come here to work, right? Like that, like very much had that essence about her. I was also figuring it's a good time to experiment. So I was gonna experiment with some calibrated questions only. Right. I wasn't going to use accusations audits. I wasn't going to use summary. I was only going to go with calibrated questions just to see how far I got. And the findings were as follows. <laughs> and this is one of the problems with asking people questions in the first place. But because she's made up in her mind that she doesn't want to help me, she has no intention of giving me any information. Every question I ask her is just another annoyance. Like, can't you tell I don't want to answer your damn questions, sir? Right? You are wasting my time. If I could do it all over again, I would have definitely gone with labels. And I would have started out with like, I know that the last thing you need is some schmuck like me bothering you while you're gearing up for the holiday break. Right? That's how I would have started. But I went all with questions, you know, see how far I could get. And yeah, everything fell on deaf ears. I, I did finally get to a point where... They said that there was a, I could go to the commissioner's office and if I went there, I could talk to a public defender that could give me legal advice because they couldn't give me legal advice at the clerk's office. And then they also, they also presented me with a form that I could submit to the court as like a plea to cancel my court date, right? I got to fill out all my information. Then there's a little box where I get to write in my reasoning. And so I did accomplish something, right? They could have sent me down the road empty-handed, but definitely didn't get as far as I would have gotten if I had to change tactics for sure. Okay, so if you need to sharpen your negotiation skills, just use your lead foot and end up back in that office. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's that's a great way to get some cycles in. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I want to dig a little bit more into like growing up around your dad and like seeing what he's doing and did that make you want to get into what he was doing you know interestingly enough if if anything it was the exact opposite you know i got i got asked all the time if i was going to go into law enforcement right you're gonna you think you're gonna be a cop you think you're gonna go into the fbi and it's like no that's what my dad does you know i'm not i have no no intention of being in law enforcement and the other thing is as busy as he was 
you know, we didn't get to spend nearly as much time together as we would have liked to as I was growing up, right? Because as you can imagine, a guy whose job it is to fly all over the world and save Americans, <laughs> he doesn't spend a lot of time, as much time as home as he wanted to. But I will give one thing that I give him a, a lot of credit for and, and very proud of is I don't think he missed a single football game that I played in. You know, I think there was even one time, like, he was in Iraq. He was, flew a chopper to a military base to jump on, like, one of those giant, like, those C, those big giant planes that carry military vehicles. I can't think of what it is, a C something or other. And took one of those back into the States and then jumped on a domestic flight to be in New Jersey just so he could make it to my football game. And then as soon as it was over, I hugged him and he jumped back on a plane and was, and was headed back to the Middle East. And so... You know, that's always a very cool thing that he went through all that effort. But, you know, whenever I got the chance to be around him when he was having a conversation of influence, it was always clear that his approach to the interaction was different than the average human being. You know, and I, I'm, a, I'm a people watcher, right? I've always enjoyed just watching how people operate, like this person versus that person. And why? Why are they so different? And so getting a chance to watch my father was definitely a huge leg up. And you could feel how his approach was, it almost never started with making his own point. And I always thought that was really interesting because, you know, especially when you're in school, right? Join the debate team, right? Learn how to build an argument, right? You start learning how to negotiate in little ways as you're growing up, all through argument-based thinking, right? How do I make my points? How do I get my point across in a more effective way? And then I watched my father interact and it was almost like he never had a point to make. You know, it was weird. It was just, it was all about how do I manage the motivations and dynamics that are involved in the counterpart, right? That, that was very much your start. Like I, there's something that encompasses your entire mindset. And if I can start there, we're going to have a lot more productive conversation. And, and interestingly enough to get, get to meet people that he worked with in the FBI office, there was one guy, uh, he, he since passed, unfortunately, he died of leukemia, but um, a guy by the name of Tommy Corrigan. Tommy had a habit of anytime he was going to talk to somebody where he was going to rip them a new one, right? Especially if somebody he had a close relationship with and he knew he was going to tear into him and scream at him and make him feel horrible. He always started that interaction by looking at him and saying, have I wronged you in some way? Because he wanted to open the door to allow them to vent before he got into what he had to say. And so, you know, kind of a combination of things, being able to watch some of these experts interact and operate was, it was definitely a cool thing. I wish I could have watched more of it, but the few chances I got, I uh, definitely tried to pick up little things here and there. Have you been around terrorists? I have not been like, quote unquote, around terrorists. No, not really, but I've, you know, I've gotten a chance to see them, right? I mean, they get walked through the, the New York FBI office when I happen to be sitting in the bullpen, hanging out with my dad and his buddies. When he worked on the first Trade Center bombing, and I believe it was 93, you know, the Blind Shake was a big orchestrator of that faction at the time. I got to see the Blind Shake. You know, obviously didn't meet him or anything. And interestingly enough, my father actually let me, you know, as a kid, he let me think I was helping him with the case. You know, certain case documents that he let me hang on to. And I was like, Dad, I want to help you. I know this is a big case. Like, what can I do? And he's like, here, review these case documents and then, you know, make some notes and highlight some things. And so that, that was kind of a cool thing. He liked, he liked to rope me in. Yeah, that is really interesting. Did you want to, like, be more a part of that? 
the appeal was was there to a certain degree because it's such cool it's such a cool line of work right like if you're doing that stuff you're doing things in your lifespan that nobody else will ever get a chance to do and so the appeal in that front was definitely there I think some of what kind of kept me at arm's distance from that was my stubbornness because it's like ah right that's my dad's job right that's not that's not who I am necessarily so I think I think that was probably part of it but yeah there was definitely an appeal there I think the other thing it's <laughs> kind of interesting I I wish that the government paid those guys more <laughs> that's that's the other thing right like there's there is a ceiling to your earning potential when you go into that line of work that you just unfortunately will never get over because there's there's just that's the way it, that's the way it works yeah that's definitely true and also like was there ever a point in his career where he couldn't talk about the work that he was doing i mean there's got to be things that he can't talk about yeah you know what if he's been retired for quite some time now so it's probably okay for me to say this you know the reality was everything that he worked on was top secret classified he wasn't allowed to speak to anybody about it and the one person that he spoke to about it that I think helped keep him sane at times was me. You know, I was, I was my father's sounding, especially when I was real little, right? When I'm between the ages of like five to 10 and he was working with, you know, the Joint Terrorist Task Force on a more regular basis and, you know, TWA Flight 800 and the first Trade Center bombing and running down, you know, I, I can't think of what they were, but they, what eventually evolved into Al-Qaeda terrorists all over the United States, right? And you're not technically supposed to talk about any of it, but he, he trusted me with the info and I was tight-lipped. Okay, talk about the weight of the freaking world on your shoulders. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, I guess in some ways you could look at it that way. I, did, I guess I didn't <laughs> see it that way at the time. You know, I just, it was almost like I, I, I kind of knew that I was like my father's psychologist a little bit. I felt a certain amount of pride in the fact that he would trust me with that. And I definitely didn't feel like a weight. It was almost like if there was anything about it that was weighted, it was just simply I'm helping my dad carry this more than anything else. That's so sweet. That's a very special relationship. We're very close. We, we have always had a good bond that I feel very lucky. I love my daddy too. <laughs> Hence the name, great name of the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. Did he have a special relationship with his dad as well? You know, I think that their their relationship blossomed more when my father became an adult. Mm. Because like I told, like I mentioned earlier, right? My, my grandfather, Richard, was he was a harsh guy. You know, there's no buts about it. He's definitely, he's one of the toughest, toughest men I've ever met or seen. And that includes people in movies and TV, right? You know, so with that said, he was, he had a tendency to be hard on his kids. And, and one of the reasons was because like the world ain't going to take it easy on you. Right. So neither am I. Right. And so in order to prepare you for the world to, to turn you into the best adult that I can make you, it's going to require me being hard on you and not and making it a point to not be your friend more often than not. He thought he was doing the right thing. And I think for that time frame, right, every generation is different. There was a certain amount of effect. So look, look who look who Chris Voss became. Right. I mean, and a lot of that has to do with the whole nurture concept from Richard. And so. But as a kid, you know, once he turned 18, he turned his back on Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and had no intentions of ever looking back. He eventually got past that. You know, he's, I've managed to drag him back to Iowa. And then, um, you know, my grandfather died in 98, I think it was, when he passed away. And him and my father had definitely reconciled by that point. You know, they were closer. 
you know, they talked more and they went out and they played golf together and things like that. So it's kind of interesting. Their relationship really blossomed when my father had already become an adult. What's your mom like? Oh, my mom. Oh, my mom's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Her and my father actually met when my father was a Kansas City cop and he was just he was working a beat at that time. And she was actually a dispatch for the Kansas City Police Department. The relationship grew from there, right? They heard each other's voice over the radio occasionally, and then they eventually met and got married, and, you know, along came me, right? Yeah, as far as, let me see, different things my father has done that I think are pretty cool. He came to career day once when I was in grammar school, and he showed up with a bunch of FBI badges, like the little plastic, you know, pin-on ones for kids, right? But, I mean, he must have had like 400 of those things that he brought with him, and so I got to hand them out in school you know hey my father's here here's an fbi badge and like that i was like the most popular kid in school that day because i was a guy handing out fbi badges that was pretty cool because and then it was he was also like the coolest parent right because he shows up and he starts talking about his job and it's like what this is wild like even the parents are interested right they, they're hanging on his every word you know growing up in new jersey we got snow in the winter time but we didn't always get a lot of snow Whenever we did get enough snow where we could go sledding, no matter what day of the week it was, if it was possible, he'd pull me out of school so we could spend the whole day sledding because it was such like a rare instance, right? Like you only get to go sledding like once every other winter. We get to one of our favorite hills that we frequented when we went sledding and it's dead silent. You know, the sun had already gone down, so it's pitch black out. But it's dead silent. So we figure we got the whole hill to ourselves, right? We're going to get there. It's just going to be the two of us on this hill. We're going to have a great time. We get up there and the hill is actually packed. There was easily 14 or 15 families on this hill, but everybody's dead silent, right? It's weird. There's no, there's no laughter. Like people are just, they're sledding down and their kids are carrying the sleds back up to the top and then just sledding down again. It's just this very, you know, robotic approach to sledding <laughs> and me and my dad we're goofballs we like to have fun you know even even to this day because we look so different we will start fake arguments in public just to make other people nervous right because they never figure we're together so we show up on this hill and like ain't no amount of silence gonna keep us from having fun and so we get on there and it starts out as a snowball fight we're gonna do a snowball fight at the bottom of the before we even get up there right we're throwing snow at each other we're tackling each other into the snow screaming and yelling and then we get all the way up to the top and we get into another like wrestling match at the top of the hill where I end up jumping on the sled to get away from him. And he chases me down and lands on me on a sled and we both go sliding down and like create this huge snow pile at the bottom. And then we grab the sled and we go to the top and we do it all over again. And the rest of the people that were there, like the, as much fun as we were having, it was just contagious. And so the next thing we know, there's basically a sledding party going on on this hill where everybody just snow we're getting into snowball fights with other families right and stealing each other's sleds and jet down the hill with some other family sled and laughing and so that was that was a pretty memorable moment that one was a lot of fun we had a great time that day oh my god i think the whole world needs more moments like that i would agree especially now right especially with where we are in our current state of affairs <laughs> Okay, so final question, and then I'm going to let you ask me a question for my dad. But what do you feel like you were able to bring to the Black Swan company that was missing? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. What's interesting is I think it's my strength for Black Swan has 
continue to evolve and change based on need. And so out the gate, I would definitely say it was sales, you know, being, being able to just have the conversation where we were putting an idea on the table where somebody purchased something from us. And then as things have evolved, uh, ability to create content and, and evolve some of our skill set, like, like the accusations audit, for example, it's one of those things that I, that I kind of thought up based on things I've experimented with and saw. And it's not, the accusations audit isn't even something the FBI has, you know, that wasn't something we took from the bureau and then adapted. We created it out of whole cloth. And then, you know, especially in more recent years, I think it's a lot more predicated on, you know, business strategy and teamwork. You know, because essentially everyone that works for Black Swan these days, I hired personally, right? My father hired me, and then everybody else that worked for us has been hired by, by me. You know, being able to just be a good leader, be, give people good clarity, what their expectations are, how we fit these things together. You know, especially as, and when COVID hit, you know, changing from an all in-person travel on plane strategy to everything's got to be done virtually. And there is no you know, we had no foundation for that. We hadn't been doing virtual training. And so making that switch basically during the course of a week was definitely a big help. So I think, I think it's changed somewhat as time has evolved, but it definitely started out with the whole sales aspect. Can you break down what the accusations audit is? In short, right, kind of the definition, as it were, of an accusations audit is a verbal articulation of all the problems, issues, negative thoughts and positions that a counterpart has against us. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier, but you know, what are the things that I can say that are going to address all the reasons that they wouldn't make a deal with me? And a lot of those reasons are things that they've already brought to the table, right? They don't get developed during the conversation. They came in the room with them. And so if we can start to predict what those are, Number one, it shows that we're not scared of. And then secondly, right, this idea of understanding, right? Like the power that it has in the moment of someone feeling like you completely understand where I'm coming from and I didn't even have to open my mouth. But then this idea of wanting to collaborate, and that's what negotiation is about. It's not win-lose or win-win, it's collaboration. And whatever, whatever the result of that collaboration is, is where we're going to end up. Ideally, we're both better off as a result. But how do we facilitate a collaboration? It's not me versus you or you versus me. It's us versus the problem. But an accusations audit is always a great place to start. Well, I feel better off from this collaboration and you definitely brought the gem. So thank you so much for all of, you know, what you were sharing with me. And is there anything that you would like to ask my daddy? You know what? Someone that has a wealth of knowledge like your father does, there's so many questions I could ask. But the thing that comes to mind for me is as a new parent, what should I be most aware of? Or what, what's, what's the best advice that a guy like that could give a guy like me when it comes to being a new parent? I love that. Well, he has three little girls, so... I'm sure he'll have something good to tell you. I would imagine. I'm in, I'm in the hashtag girl dad club now too. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Well, I hope you don't have to return any blankets with ink. <laughs> Hopefully not. I'll call you. If, if I run into that problem, I'll call you first. <laughs> I hear my little baby now. So I'm going to be mindful of your time. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It was, it was my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. 
now, let's move it on to Grandpa. Just like all children, the first thing they want to do is say, well, whatever my dad's doing, I'm never going to do that. And it turns out that he had a very special relationship with his father. And he ended up doing exactly the same thing as his father, but helping him take it a step further and be able to even help run his own company that his father started and be able to continue to run with the ball. Isn't that a very similar to the commitment that I made to my father, where I didn't think that even this little business would work, but knowing that all of the issues and problems and where my dad really put his heart and effort into many jobs and and starting a couple of businesses that failed. It's hard not to want to back up your dad if you can be helpful to him. The irony is that my mom and dad and I, and obviously we had help sometimes from some of the other siblings, and even my children got involved in it a little bit, but everyone getting involved a little bit in a family business certainly can give you a stronger connection to the world and the things that we have to face together. And isn't that also, you know, some of my experience on the debating team, he, he brought up also, is that sometimes you plan out to make an argument, but it's the rebuttal round is where debates are won and lost. It's those that know how to be able to be a little sarcastic, be able to find the weak points in an argument, and be able to attack it. And sometimes your program or what you have to say doesn't necessarily have to go anywhere as long as you're able to make points on what they are saying. And isn't that also very true in any collaboration or any dispute is that you have to be able to look at all the angles, just like if you're playing in a chess game. You have to be able to think ahead and be able to figure out all the possibilities of not only what you can do, but really what your opponent is going to do. And if you understand what your opponent is going to do, that also plays in your part or your thinking of how you're going to react and how you should move to be able to make sure that you have a better chance of winning the game by understanding what's up your opponent's sleeve. Yeah, I liked when he said, maybe I would have been more successful returning the blanket if I just incriminated myself from the beginning. (laughs) Isn't that the case? But you know, what's so funny is that people that are in a position of authority where they're going to make a judgment on your behavior. If you show that you understand what you've done wrong and you own up to it, so many people are so full of excuses where they want to blame everyone but themselves. But someone who takes the responsibility and says, hey, you know, I wore these crazy shoes today and I wore these crazy sunglasses. And yes, I wore this tie around my head instead of on my neck. I I just wanted to cut loose and feel comfortable, and I wanted to show off my slick shoes. And by showing that you understand you've broken all the rules, you misbehaved, you understand, and you bring out that you're taking responsibilities for your actions and showing that you do understand, that's really what the judge or the person in authority wants to hear. And believe it or not, that makes the penalty usually a lot lighter. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn.
If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 